Hello and welcome to WA Real. My, I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real is, is about real stories from people right here in Western Australia. And they don't get much more real than today's guest, Peter Lyndon Jones. Peter is the founder and chief executive of the West Australian Shalom Group, a men's residential rehabilitation program. Shalom House seeks to restore the lives of men and families in our community. The inspiration and background behind this is drawn from Peter's own childhood and early adult experience, which features a life of crime, drug addiction, and incarceration in most of the jails in Western Australia. Um, through a personal life-changing experience that could be best put down to divine intervention, Peter took action to abandon this old life and start doing what he knew was right. In 2010, he was released from jail for the last time. He began working to right the wrongs of his past and changing his patterns of behaviour. After three years, Peter obtained his advanced diploma in theology and became a prison chaplain. Peter opened the first Shalom house in Swan Valley in 2012, and since then this has grown to several houses with over 80 residential residents, supported by 30 paid staff and an army of volunteers. Described as Australia's strictest rehab, with a kick-out rate of nearly about 40%, the programme has delivered real results, for which he was named the state finalist in Australia's local hero category of the Australian of the Year Awards this year. Peter has also condensed all of his learnings into a book called Tough Love, Tackling Drug Addiction and Seeing Change, which was published this year. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey. And, and thank you yeah. very much for inviting me to your office. That's, that's welcome. Uh, thank you. Cool. So one of the questions um, I often ask my guests, because it is called WA Real, is um, I ask people about their relationship with Western Australia. You're obviously born and raised here, um, and obviously you've been through quite a journey here. Um, was there ever a point when you thought, right, enough is enough, enough sort of stuff has gone on here in Western Australia and I'm going to live and go and leave it and go and live somewhere else? Or has this always been your home? Um, no, I've been around Australia seven times, running running from myself. So basically um, um, from the age of probably nine, um, well, the story starts a lot earlier than that. But I'm basically as an adult, I've moved every three months most of my life. I've been around Australia seven times running for myself. I go from here to Adelaide, try to start fresh over there. And my past would follow me there. So I go to Queensland. From Queensland, I went up to Northern Territory, from Northern Territory, went across to Broome, and from Broome to Carrara. And, and I've just been doing that. Well, I've done that for about 13 years with my wife. Uh, but for most of my life, I've just been moving every three months, literally from probably the age of seven. So Right. Um, trying to start afresh into other, other states. But I always ended up back in Western Australia. What is it about Western Australia that's brought you back? Well, over the last 15 years, I've been in a lot of other countries, um, but Western Australia is a, a really, really beautiful place. I'm, I'm proud to be called Western Australian. Yeah. I think the facilities, our roads, our culture, um, that as other, as uh, all the other mis- uh, states have made mistakes, I think that we've actually taken the time to learn from their mistakes and, and we've developed our state uh, um, learning from them. So, which, which has made us a better state than the rest of them. Yeah. What sort of learnings would you say they are? Oh, infrastructure, roads, uh, transport, uh, especially our highways. And if you have a look at the changes that's taking place at the moment, I mean, it's really easy to transition from one place to another. And having grown up in Western Australia, it used to take you three hours to get to Mandra. Now you can get there in 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And just the way that they put the roads and the infrastructure together, it's just, I mean, you can't surpass it compared to other states. Yeah. Do you always see yourself living in Western Australia? Oh, no, I actually see myself traveling the world. I think that it's, it's, uh, I've been doing a lot of traveling, a lot of public speaking. And that's, that's where I see myself, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. 
So um, your story starts, you know, quite early on. Um, you know, I watched the Australian story um, that was published by ABC later this year and, and read some stuff. And, you know, there is, um, you know, you talk about making the decision to go to Longmore at the age of nine as opposed to going with your dad. Um, when you look back now, how do you view your childhood? Um, I can't remember much from the age of probably seven, the day that um, mum threw the pot at, at dad's head. Uh, I, I mentally, I literally blocked off a lot of that before that. Yeah. Um, but my childhood sucked, really. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't wasn't a very good childhood. I I, um, I made a lot of stupid choices. Um, but at the time, the choices that I made, um, I wasn't actually equipped to make, but I made them out of anger and frustration and bitterness. And, and I just... Um, yeah, I made a lot of silly choices, the choices that uh, as a child at my age I shouldn't actually or I wasn't equipped to make. Yeah. Well, yeah, forced to make choices at quite an early age. Yeah, well, the choices that I made determined the direction of my life. I faced lots of circumstances that I didn't create, but through those circumstances I made choices out of emotion. I made choices out of bitterness and resentment and anger and thinking that it would pay other people back, but at the end it had the consequence on me. And, and I just kept suffering consequences and, and keep making choices and I just continued to spiral downhill. Yeah. And, and which basically led me into a world that I didn't know how to get out of. Yeah. I think I read that um, you said that uh, in these institutions you met other people who were coming from a similar situation from yourself. Yeah, to understand the institutions part and to re- relate to the institutions part, you've got to actually understand the two years leading up and to the age of nine, from between the ages of seven and nine. Um, I remember as a seven-year-old boy, <clears throat> I used to have a strong relationship with my dad. I loved my dad. He was a mechanic. Um, he's still a mechanic. Well, he's not a mechanic, but he's still alive. Um, but I had a, a good relationship with him. And um, and him and mum went out one night, and I can remember clearly that they went out one night, and, and the lady a couple of doors up um, looked after my uh, looked after our siblings. There's five of us. I'm the second oldest. And... Um, uh, it turned out she got locked out of the house for the night and she only lived two doors up. She slept the night and I woke up in the morning and all I heard was mum and dad screaming. I mean, they used to drink a fair bit, but I heard mum and dad screaming and I walked out of my bedroom to see mum throwing a pot and it hit dad in the back of the head. And when he hit dad in the back of the head, then basically that was the last time dad had lived at home. He moved out and he went and lived at uh, the Eden Hill Hotel, which was a motel out the back. And um, he moved in there and at, at, at that time. I was probably seven. Um, I was going to Lockridge Primary School, which is not far from here. And um, I used to pull in and see my dad quite regularly on the way to school and see if he wants anything from the shops. He'd give me 10 bucks, uh, I'd buy him a loaf of bread, a packet of fags, and he'd always say, keep the change. And I'd done that for like three, four months. And as a seven-year-old kid, you don't understand why mum and dad's breaking up. You don't understand all that sort of stuff. But I remember <coughs> as a seven-year-old kid laying on the bed watching dad watching the movies, uh, Anzac Parade and all that sort of stuff. And I'd done that for like a few months. One day I banged on the door and banged on the door and banged on the door. This may tell there's no answer. And I um, went to get on my pushy to go to school like I normally did. And uh, the gardener in the car park that was there with a rake and a shovel, I said to the bloke, if you see him, I said, my dad. And he said, your dad moved out. He left yesterday. He doesn't live here anymore. And for me, I felt just like a wave of rejection. Or I just felt something into me. I just felt like I'd been abandoned. Um, he didn't tell me he was going anywhere. He just up and left. And for me, from between the age of seven and nine, my life sort of fell apart. I remember staying at 28 Scanner Way in Lockridge. And I remember 
people coming in. I can remember unplugging the stereo. I can remember taking the TV. I can remember them taking the furniture. And so everything I understand now as an adult, all of that was under high purchase. Right. So I remember just the house getting emptied of all the stuff. I remember mum getting lots of different boyfriends from that point on. I remember the stability that I had wasn't there anymore. Yeah. I'm the oldest boy. I have an older sister, two younger brothers and a younger sister. And my mum started drinking. It escalated uh, and just everything started going wonky. And we had one particular bro. We, I remember always, always broke. We had one particular bloke who'd rock up. Every time he left, mum would have heaps of money. It turns out he was a, a fly-in, fly-out fella. was mum's uh, boyfriend. Uh, and eventually we couldn't actually afford um, where we were staying, so we had to move out of there. And we moved to my grandmother's. And from between the ages of seven and nine, we just continued to move around. My mum would get a boyfriend. We'd move in with his boyfriend. Um, one in particular boyfriend she had. Um, this bloke was an extremely violent fella. And, and what he used to do with my mum, um, he would grab her by the hair and drag her in the house and beat the living crap out of her. And I can remember on one occasion, it was three o'clock in the morning, all the kids were hiding in the rooms because this bloke was just going ballistic. None of us knew what to do. We were only eight, seven or eight. And I was seven or eight. And then I walked out in the lounge room after all the screaming had stopped. I see mum sitting on the end of the lounge um, and she had her head in her lap and, and her hands were shaking. And then she turned her head sideways and looked at me. And I can still remember her face. Both her eyes were purple. Blood was just splattered all over her face. She had a false teeth in her hands and left hand. And her right hand, she had super glue trying to glue her teeth back together. Oh. Um, I used to watch my mum cop stuff sexually from this fellow that little boys of my age should have to see. Yeah. I used to get dragged up the street, run from up the street, three o'clock in the morning, this bloke chasing her, all because of my mum's alcohol addiction. I was the sort of kid that when I went to school to get Ricky out of the cupboard, I'd go to the, the cupboard, he'd open up the cupboard and all there was was bread. Sometimes the bread was mouldy, but you'd use powdered milk and bread to have breakfast. I had to pinch other kids' lunches because mum had drank it all. Um, it got that bad when mum had to go into a rehabilitation centre. My grandparents actually took all my brothers and sisters, except for my older sister. And my older sister moved in with a friend. And I tried to stay with mum because there wasn't enough room for me at grandma's. As it was, I had to put two boys in one room and a girl in another room. And there wasn't room for me. So I tried to stay with mum and they put me with foster families. They put mum in Serenity Lodge, which is a drug, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation centre for women in Rockingham. And they put me with foster families. Now, I didn't want to be with foster families. All I wanted was my mum and my dad. Mm. And so what I used to do is run away and, and then try to run back to Kelmscott. And I'd slept on my mate's house. They'd catch me. They'd take me back again. And, um, and, and I kept running away. And when mum would get out, um, I'd go back to mum again. But the problem is every time she got out of this place, she'd go back to the same bloke that used to beat the crap out of her. And they put me in Wansley and some other places, um, which is also a children's home. Um, she got out of the, the Serenity Lodge on another occasion, and I was eight, and she moved into the Gosnells Caravan Park Village, and she moved back in them with the same bloke that used to beat the living crap out of her. Um, he's dead now. He actually died of cancer. Um, but I'm, I was staying at the caravan park, and I met a kid at the caravan park, and we used to hang around together and stuff. And... Um, and one night he said, do you want to stay over my house tonight? I said, I, I have to ask, I have the care over the night. Oh, so I have to ask mum. So I asked mum. She said, yeah. So I stayed at my mate's house tonight and I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and my mate's uncle was molesting me. I was laying frozen solid in the bed and I was petrified. Literally, I'm an eight-year-old kid and this man's doing stuff to me. And, and, I, and I, I just laid there frozen and pretended I was asleep and let this man do this stuff. Um, and now as an eight-year-old kid, and I couldn't approach my mum 
because she wasn't a safe place. She was more concerned about alcohol and this man. Uh, and my dad, he just disappeared. I hadn't seen him for a year and a half. And, and ever since dad took off, it's like the whole world's fallen apart. Yeah. And I'm struggling with all this stuff inside. And as an eight-year-old kid, I don't have the tools to actually process this crap. And um, so I just held it all in. Um, and then um, she just kept drinking, and I got put in another children's home. This time she went back to rehab, and I got put in a Parkville children's home. They put me in Parkville children's home, and I ran away three times from the Parkville children's home. Now, on the third occasion, I ran away from the Parkville children's home, with family sleeping in a good Samaritan bin at the Midland Gate Shopping Centre, um, over not far from here. I used to pick the lock and snuggle in amongst the clothes. Um, the reason I kept running away from all these institu- all these foster families and, and children's homes is all I wanted was my mum and my dad. All I wanted was to be like the other kids. I didn't I didn't want to go to all these strangers' houses. I wanted to go to one school. I ended up going to 16 different schools. I only made grade six. But I kept running away from these children's homes. And the third time I away from Parkerville, they found me sleeping in a good Samaritan bin at the Middle Gate Shopping Centre when the bloke came to empty the bin. And they caught me and they took me back up to Parkerville and then they rang my dad. And and I hadn't seen my dad since he took off. How did they find him? Uh, they must have had his number because what happened was he took off up the marble bar, up bush, and worked up bush and apparently he'd come back. But I'm a nine-year-old kid. You picture it, you get caught, you get taken back up the children's home, you walk in an office pretty much like we're sitting in now, and as soon as I walked in the office, I see my dad sitting on the right-hand side. I hadn't seen the bloke in two years. And then I see the counsellor sitting to my left. My head's going 100 mile an hour. I've been through a lot of stuff the last two years. Um, and this chick says to me, she said, listen, Peter, we're sick of you wasting your time and resources. We've chased you three times now. You obviously don't want to be here. We're going to give you a choice. You can either go and stay with your dad or you can go to Longmore. And when I looked at my dad, the second I looked at my dad, I heard a voice in my head and it said, he doesn't love you anymore. I remember thinking about it with my brain and checking with my heart what I believed to be true. And I believed that he didn't love me. He dumped me. He abandoned me. Mm. And I remember saying, yeah, that's right. And when I said, yeah, that's right, I felt an overwhelming anger go from my head and it landed in my heart. And I said, I'll go to Longmore. And I heard this other voice says, Peter, you're silly. You're making a mistake. But then I heard this other voice say, nah, stuff him. I'm like, yeah, stuff him. I'll get back here. I'm going to go stay with you. No, he was still staying with the babysitter that he ran away with two years beforehand. So I said, I got a lot more. So um, two years of just wanting to uh, find a place where I fit, I, I didn't fit anywhere. They just kept moving me around. All I wanted was a place to call home. I just wanted to be like all them other kids. I used to have to pinch other kids' lunches at school because I couldn't have my own. And then they take me to Longmore. They took me there, and my dad was the one that took me there at 1 o'clock in the morning trying to talk me out of going to Longmore. Um, but I, I was just angry at him. I was really – I operated at anger anyway. And he took me there at 1 o'clock in the morning – I remember as a nine-year-old kid, they took me in the admin area, done the admin, took me into the ablution block, and they stripped me naked. They put nick cream in my hair, crab cream on my nuts, and they gave me six comic books. Now, I'm a nine-year-old kid. I'm getting put in the prison. This place was an actual prison. I had razor wire all the way around it, and my heart was going 400 miles an hour, and I was petrified. I'm talking, I wasn't petrified. I was petrified. And they marched me down the right prison cells. There's 12 cells to the left, 12 cells to the right, and I went down to about the sixth cell on the left-hand side, and I opened up the door, slid back this padlock, pushed me in this cell, and they bolted the Dutch door shut. I had a little flat with a little square they're looking in on you. And they shut the door, and I remember as a nine-year-old kid jumping on the bed, grabbing a hold of my pillow, curling up into a little ball, and rocking side to side, bawling my eyes out, crying, saying, if you let me out now, I promise I'll behave. I won't run away again. All I want is my mum and my dad. And I'm a 47-year-old man, and I still cuddle the pillow, 
um, to get to sleep every night. Right. I'm 47. Um, but I rock side to side, bawling my eyes out, saying, if you let me out now, behave. I won't run away again. I'll be a good boy. I remember saying that. And I heard a voice as clear as day. And this voice is Peter, from this day forward, you're on your own. You're going to have to look after yourself. This is the voice in your head. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, from this day forward, you're going to have to look after yourself. You're on your own. And so I made a vow from that day forward, I'm going to look after me. Now I spent three months in that place. But in that three months in that place, I met lots of kids and, and, and all these kids, they had the stories exactly the same as mine, that mum had, mum had run and done this and dad had run and done this and mum was an alcoholic but dad was an alcoholic and, and all these kids, their circumstances and their life was like my life. Yeah. Uh, and, but I finally found I, I had a place where I fitted. I had two years of not fitting anywhere. At least I finally felt where I placed, yeah. where I belonged. But the problem is these kids, they were doing things they'd never done before. And and when you put it, get put in a prison system or a prison environment or that sort of environment, you you have to project an image that people perceive to fit in with where you are. You conform to your surroundings. Um, and, and in there you have to adapt because otherwise you get bullied and picked on and stood over. Yeah. And so I had to start projecting an image that people see to fit in with where I was. I spent three months in that place and I came out different. And they put me to Warminda Hostel after that. And when I went to Warminda, I ran into some of the kids that I actually met um, in Longmore and I started hanging around with them doing what they were doing. And I ran away from Warminda and I started living on the streets in Perth. And so I became a street kid. Um, and I started breaking the houses and stealing cars and using drugs. Um, and, and, and I this, this was, what, about 10 years old? Nine, nine years nine, old. Yeah. Nine or 10. And, and so they'd catch me and they'd take me back in again. And they locked up for three months and I'd be out for a month, back in for 11 months, out for a week, back in for six weeks. One day I was only out for a day and I was back in again. But I literally spent um, seven years locked up from the age of nine to 16 in Longmore. And nearly every birthday I was always locked up. And nearly every Christmas I was always locked up. Um, and when I wasn't locked up, I'd be living on the streets. And I graduated at Riverbank, which is another boys' prison for kids between the age of 16 and 18. I graduated there. In 1986, and I spent 18 months straight in Riverbank. I'd done two stints in Riverbank. And then from there, I graduated a prison in 1991. And I've also spent time in all the prisons of Western Australia. My whole life, I just wanted to be a geek. I just wanted to be normal. Mm. I've never sat at a kitchen table and had a meal that I can remember. I've never played sports. And jail sports is different. I've never done nothing normal. Never been on family holidays. Never had a dad to show me how to lift the toilet seat or do any of that stuff. Um, but um, I spent 26 years in prisons and institutions and most of my life not wanting to be who I was but not knowing how to change a few times that I did try to change hang around the geeks, the normal people I felt like I was a weed, that I wasn't good enough that I didn't belong Right. Um, so I went back to where I felt comfortable but the problem is where I felt comfortable wasn't constructive everyone was doing what I didn't want to do Yeah. so I was trapped and what, during that time you know, you talk about um, a voice is telling you um, giving you strong signs and signals. Was, was that voice telling you anything during that time? And what were the stories you were telling yourself during this period of time? So, it's not, it's not really. See, so it depends on the, on the, the second you popped out your old cheese's tummy, and then just to say, so yeah, understand what old cheese means. That's your mum. I got a lot of street lingo. Yeah. Like ducks, nuts, bees, knees, cooter, filthy old cheese. I know that may be disrespectful, but old cheese means your mum. Yeah. So, the second you popped out your old cheese's tummy, you begin to be programmed. Yes. And how you program um, is the way that your mum is your mum and your daddy, your dad, we're all being programmed, every one of us. Yeah. 
um, how your dad is, is how you be. You're being programmed by the schools that you go to, the circle of friends mm. that you hang around. You're being programmed. You're also being programmed by the way the teacher teaches. Yeah, you are also being programmed that as you live life, all of us, and we face circumstances that we do and we don't create. And when we face those circumstances, we actually implement patterns of behavior and ways to communicate, ways to express how we feel. We set boundaries in our life. And if they work for us, they actually become part of who we are. And when you come from an environment that I've come from, going in a prison environment, I had to implement whatever I had to implement to actually get myself to where I am today. Otherwise, I'd be dead. Yeah. Um, but a lot of what I implemented wasn't okay, but yet it worked for me. Is this where the prison within the prison that comes from? Yeah. Yeah. But depending on the person's programming or, or how they've been brought up, it's depending on what they would call these two voices, which you just mentioned a second ago. Um, I don't believe a person is a fart in the wind. And what I mean by that is when you fart, it's going to stink for a season. Um, but the vapor is going to go somewhere. And some people, when they die, they do leave a bit of a stink for a season. But sooner or later, the, the stink disappears. I don't believe you're a fart in the wind. And depending on your program, there's a light, there's a dark, there's a good, there's a bad, there's a God, there's a devil. Some people call the light the light. Some people call the light a higher power. Some people call the light God. Some people call the light, well, I think something's up there. Some people call the light your conscience. Yeah. You call it whatever you want based on your program. But the light, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meanness, take the trolley back. Um, if you go in a petrol station, they'll give you 20 bucks for too much change. One voice says score, take it back. The other voice says take it back, you take it back. The dark, dark is unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, hmm. anger, hatred, hostility, death, destruction, division. There is a light in the dark. It's like those cartoons. And I had an, uh, one voice on one side telling me something and another voice on the other side telling me something. And all of us have it. Yeah. And I could be rude and disrespect to you. And I walk away and I hear his voice, get back there and apologize. And then I hear his other voice and I stuff him. You know, and it's learning to listen to one of them voices. Yeah. Well, I, I listen to the wrong one. My heart is my hard drive. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. Out of the heart flow the consequences of life. If I take myself back to a nine-year-old boy as I walked into that um, into that office, when I looked at my dad and the second I looked at my dad, she says, you can either go to your dad or you can go to more. I heard this voice from the dark. It whispered to me, he doesn't love you anymore. My brain thought about it and it checked with all the unforgiveness and the bitterness and the resentment and the anger and the hatred I had towards him. Hmm. And I remember when I said, yeah, that's right. I felt an overwhelming anger go from my head. I felt it land into my heart. And from that day forward, I hated that man's guts with a passion. Something came in on me that day. I know it did. Yeah. And I heard another voice saying, Peter, you're making a mistake. But that didn't get down to that. Nah, because I heard his other voice saying, nah, stuff him. He deserves to be punished for what he's done to me. Yeah. And I listened to the wrong voice. And that, that then set the track for the next the rare, for 15, the next 20 years. 26 years, yeah. yeah. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. Out of the heart flow the consequence of life. Out of the heart the mouth speaks. I mean, you can tell what's in a person by the way they speak and think and act. And I've learned more in the last five and a half years than I have in my whole life. I feel like I'm in a blooming science fiction movie. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I spent most of my life in prisons and institutions. Uh, yeah. Up until 31, I met my wife at the age of 19 when I was selling drugs at a pub. Um, she was a geek from Ongan Hills, country's daughter, farmer's daughter, um, ducks at school. A geek to me, by the way, and uh, to you, just for clarification. Yeah. Um, a geek to me is a, um, a normal person, a productive member of society, free from the into drugs and substances. They don't steal and, and they don't lie and they're just normal geeks. They have family holidays and they sit at the kitchen table, have a meal. 
Um, Dad sits on the sidelines and cheering him on the footy field and I just did all the stuff my whole life. I wanted to be a geek, yeah. but I never had none of that. <coughs> she grew up, excuse me, she grew up a head girl, a ducks at school. Um, we have my daughter, clean house. And then I'm, I'm selling drugs in the pub. And, um, yeah, just met her selling drugs in the pub, wood and all that sort of stuff. I don't think she realised what she was getting into. And I hid a lot of the drug use from her. And then bit by bit, I slowly introduced her to drugs and, and over a 13 year period, I, I ruined her life. And then I, I moved consistently every three months and we ended up going around Australia. You took her with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We ended up getting together and stayed together five years and got married and, and just, just kept running. I just kept running from myself. And, but wherever I went, I went. I'd go from here to Kalgoorlie, start off with a packet, a packet, in other words, a gram or half a point. And then I'd get to an eight ball, then get to an ounce and start dealing and selling. And then I amassed a big habit. I knew what was coming. I knew I was going to head to jail. And so I'd run. I'd just pack up the car and take off again. Right. And then went over to Adelaide and Kilkenny in South Australia. Done the same thing again there. Start off with the packet. Next time I'm selling the C4 Dynamite and all that sort of stuff. See, I was going to head to jail. Just grabbed the missus, grabbed the kids, packed off and took up over to Olympic Dam uh, at Oxford Downs. Got a job there for a while. Done the same thing. Then from there to Queensland. Then from there to um, cry. And I just kept running and running and running and running. But the problem is my personality and who I was as a person, everybody that I felt comfortable around, and they were all doing what I didn't want to do. If I tried to hang around the geeks, the normal people, I felt like I was a weed that I didn't belong, yeah. that I wasn't good enough, that everybody's judging me. And when I tried to get off the methamphetamines, I'd have to use alcohol. I needed something to cover up all the shame. Yeah. Because um, if I stopped using substances, how I felt about myself... Comes washing back in. So washing back in. All the thoughts about what that man did to me when I was a child. Yeah. It was flooding up. How my dad dumped me was coming to the surface. I'm mean, watching my mum, the visual flashbacks of mum seeing her face matted or, I mean, I don't want to decide my mum, but the sexual positions that I see my mum cop, uh, they flashed through my brain. You know, and just lots of stuff flashing. And, and so I just, as long as I had a beer or something or a, a pure or something to cover the crap that was in me, um, I felt okay. Yeah. I felt I could fit, I could mix amongst the normal people. And um, yeah, I just, I, I, I was addicted to the drugs and substances. And I just kept running for myself. Um, I, I kind of a big finale, I think I got, um, in 2000, I got uh, five year, I come out from South Australia, and I got right in that Ford and a whole heap of other stuff. And I'm getting charged with a whole heap of charges, and I got put in a prison. Is this all the stuff that you'd done before catching up with you? No, this is stuff that I was doing. Mm. I was just around that particular time. I mean, I've always been a court probably 10, 20 times a year. Um, but in t- in 2000, I got done. I went pretty bad on the gear and um, and uh, just done lots and lots of crime, lots of fraud, lots of credit card fraud. And um, I ended up getting five-year uh, jail whack and I'd done one year of a five-year term. But my son Ryan was born. Um, and I got put into prison three weeks after my son was born. And so I'd done one year of prison and then I got out on parole. Back in them days, they had good behaviour. And so you get knocked a third off remission. And so I got out of jail and, and after doing one year, I thought I'd sell drugs for a living. So I started selling drugs for a living. And within three months, I was selling on average of 40,000 bucks a day of, of methamphetamines, probably two and a half kilos of rock a day. And then this stuff is probably the purest crap you can get your hands on. Um, and I was moving two and a half kilo easy 
and they plus heaps of guns, nine mils, forty fours, twenty twos, brain in a box. This is all here in Western Australia. Yeah, C four, um, dynamite, all that sort of jazz. Um, and then days I was under really heavy surveillance. I had a big factory full of stuff, and uh, the factory full of stuff is gear that I bought with my drug money. Um, and yeah, and I went really, really big and really, really quick. But at the same time, I was under really heavy surveillance. And there is a surveillance team out there, and they're bloody whoever they are. They're, they're really good at, at what they do. They, they're um, actually had a couple of homicide squad detectives near interviewing one of my fellows the other day, and I was just telling them if they ever talk to that mob, they won't acknowledge them they exist, but I know they're there. But they got a surveillance team there, and I was under really heavy surveillance. And what they try to do is they work out where you are on the family tree. And in them days, I was shooting up steroids in my butt, and so I had a bad attitude and diamond rings and on my fingers and and bald head and big beard. And um, I was living in Shelford Street in Bayswater. But I remember one night, I, I'd just done 16 days, no sleep. Uh, and then I'd come home and crashed. And when you crash after 16 days, no sleep, you sleep for a couple of days. And then um, uh, I woke up one morning and the helicopter was over the roof. The TRG comes through, smashed the windows, bottles, shotguns, bulletproof vests and all that. And then they had the missus down in the hallway naked with, with my um, son Ryan who was 16 months in the, uh, at the time in her arms. I remember with my face planted on the side of the ground with a knee in my back. I'd just seen a man laying in butt naked at the hallway and stuff. Um, I got done with a pound of pot, two handguns and some other stuff. A mate Crash, or his nickname is Crash, but Crash pulled in the driveway. He got done with an ounce of weaver, 20 grand cash, loaded 22. And um, they took us in the cop shop and I got charged with um, intent to sell and supply, uh, a couple of handgun charges, and a whole heap of other stuff, pound and pot. And Kyle got a whole heap of stuff. He ended up getting seven years and for one ounce. It's a bloody lot for one ounce. And, um, yeah, and they, and, they, and I remember he had sitting in the cop shop telling the missus, make sure you shut your mouth, don't tell him squat. Now, when you're dealing with methamphetamines, um, methamphetamines is a really evil drug. It's probably the most evilest drug to hit the face of the planet. Why is that? Um, because of what it does to your brain and, and the destruction it does, not just to the individual, it actually destroys generations of families. It's, it's, it's a, it is the evilest drug ever to hit the planet. And at the moment, they're looking at it wrong. They're focusing on the individual using the drug where, where they're not realising it's actually wiping out mum and dad, brother and sister. It's destroying generations in one hit through one person, whereas other drugs doesn't do that. Right. You know, and it creates division, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment. And those light and dark voices, that dark voice it just gets into everybody. Right. And it's just destroying everybody. Yeah. And when it gets in you, it actually influences how you speak, how you think, how you act. You get thoughts you don't want to get in before. And a lot of the thoughts that we get in our brains, they're not our thoughts. They are actually introduced thoughts. And you'll find that the introduced thoughts that come to your brain correlate or correspond or go or take you back to a point in life where you've done something you know that you shouldn't have. And, and those voices try to steer you down that direction. Um, so me as a child, for example, um, I actually fondled another boy's genitals growing up. I've slept with hundreds of prostitutes behind my wife's back. I've played mums and dads with my sister growing up, doctors and nurses. I've done lots of things that I'm ashamed of. I was sexually abused. And I didn't realise by keeping all that in me, a lot of the voices that was in me was tormenting me, trying to take, bring me guilt and shame and unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment and anger and all that sort of stuff. And it wasn't until I started talking about all my crap and cleaning myself up that all of a sudden the D had less to whisper about and now he can't wish for all he's got nothing on me. Hmm. But it's a process, and, and, and which is a bit for later on in this talk. But I got raided, I got out on bail, and the reason I got out on bail is the coppers like to see where it is that you're um, 
uh, where it is that you're linked on the food chain. Where am I getting my two and a half kilos of meth from? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm not, I'm more of use on the street than I am in, indoors. Right. And, and they choose when they want to knock you off your own. And I've caught them in their, in their, in their sprinter vans. I've had fiber optics through my house, my building and my cars and all that sort of stuff. But with the meth, it flips with your head and it gives you psychosis. And I had psychosis. I mean, I, one morning going out there at three o'clock in the morning with a chainsaw over the park saying, if you don't come down, I'll chop the tree down. I spent two and a half days in the camera looking at this little tiny thing. And other times I'd sneak out there with a digital camera, jump over the neighbor's fence, try and take pictures of something that wasn't even there. Right. Because I was leaping out on the gear. And then I had the coppers under me under, having them under surveillance. And it's hard to know. So some bit was found it. Some oh, bit was unfounded. Yeah, and your brain's just, mate, it's just like frizzled. And it's tried hard to run back from fiction. And the way the coppers work, the task force work, they do hand signals and these other things. And, and it just someone touches themselves like this. Maybe well, they're a couple, or maybe they're a copper. And it sends your brain in panic mode. And especially when you're doing the gear and stuff. And it just really frizzled me. But I used to be president of the Loopers Club. I was doing lots and lots of gear. I used to give people a couple of points. And just president like, of the Loopers Club? Yeah, I call it Loopers Club. Right. Yeah, so I'd give people two points of shot of gear and drop on the ground, watch them chuck donuts on the floor. And they'd be screaming, what have you done to me? And I'd just laugh. Or I could have a half away to what, they'd, what I'd give them because my tolerance to the gear, I had really, really good gear. Yeah. I was, I was pretty bad. Um, yeah, and just lots of this stuff happened. But I remember over the course of my life, there were three particular times um, where I tried to change and hang around the geeks. I reckon that as a nine-year-old that, that day, if someone had to open that door, that prison cell, that experience itself... If someone had opened that door back then, back there... Well, you were saying, that, enough that, enough that experience itself was enough to scare the crap out of me and I wouldn't have run away again. Hmm. But they didn't open the door. And I've been in that place three times in my life and each time, nobody was there. No one opened the door. Hmm. It was three specific points that if somebody had to just grab my hand, I know that I know that I know my life would have changed. And that's what I did now. I look for those who are at that point um, and, and I've got a way of filtering the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. And that's why at the moment you read on your introduction that I have 80 men in my facility. Well, I actually have 140 men in my facility. Right. And I just took on another facility yesterday, which is about to take me up to 170 men. And you said on your piece of paper that I have 30 staff. Well, in fact, I actually have nearly 70. Wow. 50 to 70 staff, 100% self-funded. Um, I, have a, I have a lot on my hands and we're growing exponentially. Yeah. And that's just... Uh, yeah, over the last probably four months, and then man, it's huge. So, what was you, you mentioned? You, you mentioned earlier on about the point where um, the TA <coughs> came in and they've got you pinned to the ground. Yeah, is it? Is this the point when things turn for you? No, the thing is, the point where things turn for me is I, a six-year-old son, Peter, and my other son Ryan, who was thirteen months old. Peter was five, and my woman. I just used to leave my wife at home. And um, and I'd just disappear for 10, 12 days and, and just come back every now and again. I'd be feeding her drugs and just disappear. And I'd be going to sleep with prostitutes and whoever would sleep with her just doing my stuff. And um, I used to have a deal with a Crash. I mean, he's dead now. He, he uh, yeah, passed away. But I used to have a deal with his bloke to see if you can get the biggest diamond rings on your finger. And he used to have a bald head and all that sort of jazz. And... Um, uh, my wife enrolled my son, Peter, in this thing called Grasshopper Soccer. And there's a thing called uh, Ozkick that they have here in Perth, um, which is Ozkick is like a, 
um, an infant's introduction to how to play football. Yeah. And they, they teach these five or six year old kids how to kick a football. Mm. Um, and this is the soccer version of it. They call it, um, um, uh, soccer, um, grasshopper soccer. And so my wife enrolled my son into this thing called grasshopper soccer. And up until that point, I honestly can say that I never spent any time with my son. I see my son from a distance, but I was too busy doing my drugs and doing my things. Yeah. I didn't actually ever spend quality time with him, play, play with him toys. Is that because it was painful or because it was... A, I've never done it. I've never had a dad. Yeah. So I didn't, didn't, I didn't even know how to be a dad. I just, just, I just left him with the missus and as long as that was right, I spent all, all my time in my shed. I didn't spend any time with my son. I never done nothing with him. Right. As a kid, didn't know how to have it. be a dad. I never had a dad. I never done none of that stuff. Never a model. Never even sat at a kitchen table. I mean, I remember once when I was 14, um, I did stay with my dad once um, with his girlfriend and my brother Gavin happened to stay over there one night. And I remember, and this is, I sound silly, but this is how I learned to lift the toilet seat. Um, I stayed one night over at my dad's house and my brother Gavin was there. He was he lives with grandma full time. He did ever since he was a kid. But he slept, I slept there and someone pissed on the, on the um, toilet seat. And I know that for a fact it wasn't me, but I remember the old man screaming his bloody nut off about someone pissing on the toilet seat, that when you're, a lady goes to the toilet, it's only common respect, a bloke, if you go to the toilet, lift the bloody seat for the woman and pay and then put the seat down. Yeah. Well, nobody ever told me that. Right, it's and, just that. Uh, but I didn't piss on the seat, and my brother swears black and blue it wasn't him, and I ended up getting the walloping for it, <laughs> and yet it wasn't me. I know that I know that I know that it was him. From from this day forward, mate, I lift the, I lift the toilet seat, okay. I chuck a piss, and I put the seat back down. And if I dribble, I wipe the bloody thing. Yeah, but it's not a really nice way to learn how to no. how to, to go to the toilet from your dad. You know, and that's the only lesson my old man ever taught me. Is yeah, but he learned it, and he was wrong. And even that had an effect on me. Yeah, so you're at grasshopper soccer. Yeah, yeah, so I'm at grasshopper soccer, and um, Mrs. Rolls, my son, in this thing in Mujigi, and um, them days had a big beard, bald head, each thing on me and I go over there's all these geeks over there a bit like yourself and they've all got their collared shirts on and they've got their kids there and I felt like a fish out of water and, and all these dads were there and the deal was and they had little soccer balls and the deal was the dads had to stand in this big circle or in this line and if the kid kicked the ball through the dad's legs and then the dad had to roll around on the ground and make the kid feel all fluffy and so I'm thinking mate it's not happening here yeah. No way in God's going this is happening here. Yeah. And so then I see one bloke, a kid kick the ball through the dad's legs, and the dad falls around on the ground, coochie coochie coo, and all fluffy stuff. And then the next one, and then the next one. And I'm thinking my heart was going like 400 mile an hour, split, was about to split open. And then my son, I'm thinking to myself, Vicky's out through my legs, I'm out of here, bro. Yeah. And then my son kicked the ball, and it went through my bloody legs. And then I remember when it went through my legs, I turned my back on my son, and I left him there. And when I turned my back on my son, I started to cry. And um, I wanted to so much to make my son feel what those other kids were feeling. But I couldn't bring myself to humble myself in front of my boy or in front of them people to do that stuff. And But for me, that was a turning point because after that time, some weird stuff started happening. Um, I went over the road and I told the missus to go look after the boy. Now, I'm not from a faith background, and I didn't grow up from a faith background. Um, I remember at Longbourn Rubank, every time I was locked up, we used to used to have these Christian mobs coming in. And these Christian mobs would come in and they'd bring cakes and cookies and lots of shillers. And to tell you the truth, I never went to the Christian mob to purple on the shillers and have a free feed. 
Um, and, and I, every time I was locked out for seven years, I got a Christian mob, have a people in the shielders, and have a feed. And but one particular night when I was 17, and it was 18th of May, 1986 it was, um, this Christian dude, Alan Shepherd, his name was, brought in a particular video, and this video was called Crossing the Switchblade. And in this video, it showed a picture of this bloke who was from the Bronx of America, his name was Nicky Cruz, and he actually grew up um, on the streets, and his life was a lot like mine. And he said, this bloke was the worst of the worst. He was a thousand times worse than probably what I was. Um, but he used guns and batons and chains, and they had gang wars and all this sort of stuff. And then this scrawny-looking geek broke preacher was called by a guy to go into the Bronx from America and get all these gangs together in this place and basically give them a message and tell them that God loved them. Um, and, 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 and I watched this video, and it showed Nicky's life, how he was a bit, a bit of a prickle and uh, how he come from a bad background. And, and it showed the struggle that he had within himself, just wanting to be a normal person. Yeah. And, and that was the same struggle that I had. I just wanted to be a normal person. But I'd, every time I tried, people couldn't see it. And he just accepted this is all who's ever he's going to be. And and then they end up getting all these, somehow this preacher end up getting all these dudes in this big auditorium. And then they got this Negro dude to do an offering and I'd take him an offering and Nicky, they go around and collect the money and they go around the back of the thing. And when Nicky walked up on the stage and he handed uh, the preacher on this bucket and then Nicky fell to the ground and he started bawling his eyes out, crying. Now I think it's truth. What's happening here? And, and this bloke cried and this bloke, David Wilkinson, led him in a prayer where he asked Jesus Christ into his heart. And it showed from that point in the movie how this bloke's life started to change. Yep. His thinking started to change, his speech started to change, how he dressed started to change, how he felt about himself. Everything about this fella literally started to change. And for me, it just shocked the living crap out of me. And I remember going back to my cell on that night, I got on my knees and I prayed. And I never prayed before in my life and I got on my knees and I said, God, if you're real, if you can change that bloke's life, you can change mine. And then God's presence fell in my cell. And then I know that I know that he's real and he just washed me from the tips of his head to the soles of my feet and I just know that he's real. And he gave me a scripture back then and the scripture was John 8, 32, and it said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I remember going around that jail and telling everybody about how real God is, and, and I went from zero to 100 and half a second flat and holding Bible studies in my room, and, and I got out, and when I this camera fell away from God, and 20 years later, um, I'm at this point, I turn my back on my son, I walk away, um, I tell the missus to go look after my boy, and all of a sudden, from that day forward, weird stuff started happening. Now, I can't explain to you, from the day that I turned my back on my son, um, I hadn't actually heard from God at all since that age when I was a kid. Um, but when I turned my back on my son, I can't explain to you how much I actually hated who I was. Yeah. I hated how I smelt. I hated who I was as a husband and as a dad and as a person. I hated everything about me, literally. And... um but weird stuff started happening. I'd get in my car and I'd start driving along and I started hearing voices and these voices were bloody loud. They weren't just like the normal little conviction voices. I'm hearing voices in my head. These are the same ones that you heard way back when you were nine. When a little kid, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but the same voices we get every day. It's like all of us get them. A light and a dark, a good and a bad, trying to tempt us to do bad things and 
say bad things and get us to have unforgiveness and bitterness. But I'm telling you, this is blooming loud, this was. Um, but I get in my car and I drive around doing my stuff. And uh, I started hearing his voice in my head, Peter, Peter, I want you to follow me. And I'm pushing it aside. And I kept, Peter, Peter, I want you to follow me. And I'm driving my car and the car in front of me would tap its foot on the brake pedal. And, and, and I hear this, Peter, I want you to follow me. And I felt in my head that I'm supposed to follow this car that was in front of me. So I started following the, in the car. Now, if I was to tell any person who comes from a meth background, who understands methamphetamines, they say you're looping out. Yeah. We, we call that looping out. You're hearing voices. You've got a psychosis, bro. <laughs> yeah. you, you need to be going, great, and get yourself some Zyprexa, lithium, some sort of mood. So how did you know like, this was different? Oh, I'll tell you. And so I hear his voice, Peter, I want you to follow me, I want you to follow me. So I started following in his voice, and he's, he's, it went left, it went right, it went left, and then I pulled up at a park, and then this car drives off, and I'm sitting there, and I go, what, now what? And then I look around, and I see him over the corner over there, and I sat on the other side of this park, there was a dad, and he was kicking the ball with his son and his wife there, and they had another kid there, and it was just a family, and they were playing in the park, just doing normal stuff as a family. And I heard as clear as day a voice and it says, Peter, I'm offering you this. And I sat there and I bought mine out in the car. For about 20 minutes, snot running down my beard, just sobbed. And this voice in my head offered me, I just want to be normal. My whole life, I just want to be a geek. I want to be normal. And I sat in the, in the car for about 20 minutes, bought mine out, cleaned all the snot out of my beard. And then um, I sat in my car and drove off and the bloody voice happened again. And, and then I drive on, oh, I'm trying to ignore the bloody thing. He says, Peter, Peter, I want you to follow me. So I followed this car and followed this. went left, went right, I went left. And then completely different cars every time with just this voice, car would appear in front. It, it's like it was tapping on the brake pedals purposefully saying, I'm the one you to follow. Yep. And then um, I've done it again and it pulls up next to the house. I pull up next to the house, it drives off. I turn around, look, and then there's this brand spanking new display home. It was a brand spanker. And, um, and I looked at the home, and again, I heard this voice, Peter, I'm offering you this. And I just started crying my eyes out. My whole life, all I wanted was a place to call home. Hmm. I've literally moved every, every three months of my whole life, ever since I was a seven-year-old little boy, literally every three months. I can pack a whole house up in a day. And all I ever wanted was a place to call home. I remember in the boys' home, when, once I wrote this a bit of a song, it may sound a bit corny, but it was just, I wish I had a place to stay, a place where I could live, a place where I had freedom and freedom from all the world. I just wanted a place to call home. Yeah. I mean, I'm sick of moving, just a place where I can hang a picture up on a wall and know it was mine and, and not have to move anymore and not have anyone castle. chasing me and following me. And, and I sat in the car and bored my eyes out for another 20 minutes. Now, for the whole day, this happened all day, nonstop, place after place after place. And I go back and tell my woman, I say, woman, something weird's come down. I think them these these surveillance mob they're playing with my head. Let's loop out a looper. Maybe they got a film camera on me, right? And this un, this undercover film camera following me, and they're going to actually play a video of this idiot looping out and drugs. And this is what drugs are do to you. That's what's going through my head. Yeah. And the next day the same bloody stuff happened again. But this time, last one was out Mandara way. The next time I was out this way, and I'm telling my missus something weird's going down. I thought, okay, bugger my stuff him up or get on my bike. And so I got a VN1500 cruiser, and where I was living in Shelford Street in Bayswater, we had the park across the road where my, kid, where my thing happened with my son. And this is all over a period of a week. Mm. And this is just before September 11th. And, my week, and the week leading up to September 11th, 2011. 
And I got on my bike and, and, and I told the missus, right, open the door. So she opened the roller door and I just sticked it on this bike, give it a VN 1500 cruiser, chucked it right, booted it through the dirt. And he tried to take a 1500 through dirt. It was pretty hard because it's don't know. And I got on the bloody Tonkin Highway and I cut across the traffic, got on the other side of the road, and I lost the surveillance crew. I know that I lost them. Um, and then I got on the and I'm driving along, and then I started hearing that bloody voice again. <laughs> and so I pulled over the side of the road, pulled my helmet off, thinking maybe the buggers have put a speaker in my, uh, my helmet. It was only a $47 job. And, um, but it happened all day, and all day up, right up to 2 o'clock. You know, and I was out at out in his place near, near about, I was out at Woodbridge, and he was doing the same stuff. And I was out at, and I went past near about Roadhouse, and I was on my bike, and I was sitting on 110, and this 3500 cruiser, it was standard bike, had standard pipes, nothing special to it. Um, it was brand new, full tank of juice, and I'm sitting on this thing, and I'm sitting on 110. At least I think I was sitting on 110. When I was sitting on 110, all of a sudden, the handlebars, they started shaking. Like, I mean, if you're into bikes, or like bikes. If you're into bikes, the handlebars started shaking. Right. But it was a shake that if you, if you had an ideal shake, you're on a bike and you're on these western bars, and the bars, you could feel the thump of the motor running through there. Your body, they started. And that the, the tone that the pipes had made, if you could hear a thump and have a perfect set of pipes on a bike, you couldn't tune a bike. It was like the whole universe was in sync right. for this one moment of sitting on this bike sitting at 110 and I remember going yeah like, <laughs> like it was just like it was so 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 in sync it sounds pretty stupid but I'm telling you it was for me it was just the ducks nuts yeah ducks nuts means pretty cool wasn't yeah it? yeah and then um, all of a sudden the bike starts going boom 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 boom, boom and then just died and I thought so that was a bit weird and pulled on the side of the road and I stripped all the parts apart because I'm telling you, whatever just happened to my bike, bikes don't do that. Yeah. Standard bikes, pipes, carby problems, not happening, just that don't happen. And I'm thinking maybe the maybe the coppers, I was about to call them what I used to call them then. Maybe the yeah. coppers, maybe the coppers are actually wired up and they put a motor in there to do that, what that did. And I pulled the siren fairings off, took the seat off, looked for the motor, couldn't find anything. Um, tried to crank her over, she still wouldn't crank over, full tank of juice, new bike, didn't make sense. Um, so I got on the other side of the highway and I started hitching. And I stuck my thumb out and then I just stuck my thumb out. I must have looked a bit of a mess because I had, like I said, big beard, leather jacket and all these diamond rings and gold chains and mm. I was like an absolute idiot. And, um, and I hitched down the highway and then this young couple stops and picks me up. And this young couple, that would have been probably 23, 24, I got in the back seat of this young couple's car and we started booting up the street and, um, we started booting up the street and, and probably got about six, seven car on the road and they're playing this music. And then this young dude turns around to me and he says, mate, I feel I've got to tell you something. And I said, what's that? And he says, I feel like God is telling me to tell you that, that he loves you and that he has a plan and a purpose for your life. Wow. Yeah, wow, right. I said, as soon as he said that, I just started bawling my eyes out. I says, mate, get me out of your car. And I made him pull over and I got out of the car. And I ran in the bush and I just cried for like oh, probably half an hour. Just bought my eyes out. And my message is just following you around. Yeah, he's just like. And I ran in the bush and bought my eyes out for like probably oh, ages, probably 20 minutes. And, and um, I remember taking my jacket off, hanging on the side of the road, 
And I just curled up and I just had to just lay there for a while and overthink. Man, my head was scrambled. I've had two days of all this freaky stuff happening. My head's all scrambled. I don't know if the bloody coppers or I've just had someone offer me everything I ever wanted over the last two days just to be normal. And now I've got somebody stranger telling me that God loved me and I hadn't heard from God since I was mm. a kid. So I walked out the hallway again and then I stuck my phone out and I started itching again. And then this dude pulls up and he pulled up in a black F-250 pickup truck. And this thing was matte black and it had a flat tray on the back. It was obviously in bikes because I had bike things on it. And this bloke had black hair, ponytail at the back, and half his face was literally covered with tattoos. And I reckon one day I'm going to see him again because he'd be pretty recognisable sort of fella. <laughs> Um, but I got in a car with this dude and he says to me, hey, bro, is that your bike back there? I says, yeah. He goes, I said, oh, breaking down. He says, I'll go back and pick it up, eh? And I says, nah, man, I'm scattered, bro. I just got to get home. He goes, sure, I've got a set of ramps in the back. I said, nah, nah I just got to go home, mate. I just got to get home. And so we started booting up the street. And I got about probably six car up the street, two k before the nearby roadhouse. And then this dude turns around to me and he says, mate, I don't know what it is. But I've got this overwhelming feel, um, feeling that I've got to tell you something. I said, what's that? And he says, God is telling me to tell you. God is telling me to tell you, mate, that he really loves you. And that he really, Twice in that. Yeah, he says that God really loves you and that he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And I just bawled my eyes out in this dude's car. And he dropped me off at the Nearabout Roadhouse and I was a bloody mess. I remember walking in the Nearabout Roadhouse and I literally pulled all my gold jewellery off. <laughs> took my chains off and I threw them in the bin at the roadhouse. Um, this bloke had driven off and I went out to the roadhouse and I rang my woman up. Uh, and my woman's my wife. I call my yeah. wife my woman. And I rang my woman up and I say, woman, something weird's going down. I'm telling you, you got to come pick me up. And she goes, I can't. I've got to pick the kids up from school. And so I thought, that's truth. So I walked out in the hallway again and then I started hitching again. And I got 100 metres past the nearby roadhouse and then this old granny pulls up and his dad's in 200B, Daddo. And his old granny, I remember as clear as day, she had a platinum haircut. It was like a gollywog on top. And she was just really beautiful. So I just, just really, you know, like, looked like the queen. And she got in this old Daddo and she pulls up and she goes, I don't normally pick hitchhikers up, son, but you look different. You can see her false teeth flapping as she spoke. And I got in the car with this old granny and then this old granny starts booting up the road. And we got about seven k out of the road, and this old granny says to me, she goes, "Love, love, I don't, I don't want to be rude to you, and, and I don't want to hurt you in any way or say anything that's going to offend you, but I feel I've got to, I really got to tell you something." And I say, "Yeah, what's that?" And she's got to tell me clearly to tell you that he loves you and that he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And I just pulled my eyes out. Three, I had times, three yeah. strangers in a, in a space of probably not even fifteen k's. They told me that God loved me and that he had a plan and a purpose hmm. and for my life. And I literally cried all the way from there, all the way to Basel, and she dropped me off home. Um, my head was pretty screwed up. Um, I, I had a full-on encounter with God down south the next day, um, and these voices kept following me. I had a full-on encounter with God where, I, where I, uh, people not, might not believe me, but where I got led in a, into the bush, and I seen all this ground move, and I seen that. A light in a big heaven light up and I heard a voice and it said, be still and know that I'm God. And I stood in that one spot for three and a half hours, pulling my eyes out crying. And um, I had a full-on encounter with God. It wasn't drugs, it wasn't psychosis. Um, but I know you've been that, off uh, 
drugs at this point for a while. Oh, yeah, well, I could even shoot up last week and clean up to it. Um, and, I, and I was just frizzled, you mean? And I'm in South Perth, and I'm standing on the corner, on the corner of the freeway, the corner of Berwick Street and County Highway. Um, and how I ended up getting there is after that encounter with the ground moving and freaky stuff happened. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm zooming through the back streets of South Perth, and the same thing that happened to my bike just happened to my car. I was on the side street. It made a bloody noise, and it stopped and died. Yep. Later, when my wife picked the bike up, it just worked. When I picked the car up, it just worked. worked. You know, uh, but my car died, and I was sitting on the corner of South and Kenny Highway at McDonald's there, and he used to have a separate four-wheel driver, and Kenny Highway in um, Berwick Street. And I'm waiting for my missus to come pick me up. So I was down in the corner, <coughs> and all these thoughts started going through my head. That, man, I'm selling two and a half ki- a kilo of meth a day, a really cool rock for this mob. And um, at the same time, doing lots of drugs and other guns and stuff. And at the same time, I got somebody off from everything I ever wanted. And I'm processing all this stuff. Hmm. And I'm confused and frizzled. I just need to get somewhere to think. And then, you know, this car starts squealing its wheels here. This one squeals its wheels over here. And then this Chinese chick starts coming from Hungry Jack's heading towards McDonald's. And she had a hand in a handbag like this. And she's looking around. And I'm thinking she's going to shoot me. Because in them days, I'm selling these little 22s. I used to get them brand new in the box. And what we'd do is we'd tap out the end of the thread of the barrel. And then we'd get aluminium um, tubing. And then we'd screw in and tap the thread on so you could screw it in the end. And we'd put nolithane washers on the inside and cap the end off. So when you shoot it, it's, you can't even hear it. It's like right. silence, silence, silence. And I'm thinking she's going to pop me at the corner of the traffic lights. Whoever it was was leaving all over Perth, was offering me everything I ever wanted just to be normal. And on the other hand, I'm doing the drugs and the guns. And I'm thinking, hang on, maybe this mob know that I want to go with this mob. And I know too much she's going to put a bullet in my head and put yeah. me in a hole. And then I started losing it. And so I started wanting to bring attention to myself yeah. in case they popped me one. So I jumped on top of the bonnets of the cars at South Perth all drive rentals, trying to bring attention to myself. I brought attention to myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had the coppers coming and they were chasing me down the county highway. And they ended up having me down in the middle of the highway. They had their knee in my back and they had the mace me face and they had two sets of handcuffs. And then I'm back and I'm just facing the bitch and I've got this bloody, you need a big scar or something back on the back. All right, yeah. On the back of me scone. And they had me face planted in the middle of the road, two sets of handcuffs, four coppers. And that if, if I was to, if I was to, um, grab you and break your neck, you know, that position they can break someone's neck. Yeah. And that's how they had my neck and my knee in my back. If I was to sit three people on their knees and tied their hands behind their back and kept the blindfold off them and worked up to the first one, and if I was to put a 44 to his skull and blow his brains out and you were the second person in line, you've seen that, would you feel scared? Uh. So let's pop the first one. Let's pop the second one. And the fear that you would feel... After the first one, the second one, I nearly literally pooped myself. I was that petrified. Yeah. I had a thought going through my head that these coppers work for who I was getting my gear off and they're going to take me out in Angara Pines and they're going to put a bullet in my head, drop me in a hole because when you know who I know doing what I was doing, yeah. I thought I'm screwed. And um, they're trying to put me in the back of the paddy wagon and they were looking around like this. And I remember I had two sets of handcuffs going back a foot on either side of the door. I thought they would get me in there I'm gone. Mm. And then all I could think of was a prayer that I learned when I was 17 in Riverbank. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then another one, I couldn't remember the rest of that one. 
Now I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Mm-hmm. And then I yell out, let me kill myself. I just want to see my kids one more time. And then I passed out. And I woke up in hospital the next day. And I had tubes in my head, tubes in my hands, tubes down my old fella below. Mm-hmm. I had tubes all over the place. I was dazed. I was confused. Um, my wife was there. And I was scattered. And I just needed somewhere just to go and think. I just needed to get some place to be by myself. And so I ripped all the tubes out, and I realized one of them actually has a bloody big balloon on the end of it. Right. And if you ever have a tube down below, remember there's a bloody big balloon there, and if you pull that thing out without deflating it, it hurts. Right. It would leave you with a feeling that you don't want to remember. Yeah. And when I pulled all these tubes out, and I booked myself out of the hospital, and I said to my woman, woman, I can't go home. I'm going to go find somewhere and be alone. I remember curling up on the floor of the car, we drove around all day trying to find a motel. I booked into the Wanneroo Motel, or she booked in, and I took her and my kids in there, and i done what i normally done. I covered all the mirrors, checked for surveillance gear, made sure there's no cameras behind the mirrors, and um, I went to sleep. And I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and then I had a dream. And in my dream, God told me in a dream, he says, Peter, you're going to travel the world with a group of Christian people, and you're going to tell them how I've changed your life. And I woke up, and that same feeling that I had on the 17th of May, 1986, with his presence on me, was washing me from the tips of my head to the soles of my feet. Mm-hmm. And he revealed me. Yeah, you yeah. feel him, you feel him. Tangibly, you can feel him. And I woke my wife up and said, man, I just had a dream from God. And she says, that's nice, dear, and rolls over and goes back to bed. <laughs> and so when she wakes up in the morning, I told her, I said, he's telling me I've got to go to church. And she says, what? I said, I've got to go to church. And she goes, uh. and so what we did is we went and got churchified. We went and found a shop. I went and bought myself a three-piece suit. I've actually got a top picture of myself skanked out you know, in, in this three-piece suit. Mm. But I went and got this three-piece suit, and I drove around all day looking for a church to go to. I went to a Catholic church, went to pull in there. I heard this voice, not that one, not this one, not that one. Mm. Um, a Sunday it was, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, New Life Church in Morley. I felt it, heard this voice, said, I want you to go to that church. I looked on the board, service time, 6 o'clock, went on the road, had a feed. Second, I worked in that church. I started shaking and crying and trembling on the knees. And the preacher was preaching on his message, how dare that uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living God. And when he'd done the altar call, he asked Jesus Christ in his heart and, I, and said, you need to repent and ask for forgiveness of your sins. And I asked Christ into my heart that day and he came into my heart. And he told me, Peter, give up everything I own and follow me. And um, and from that day forward, my life started to change. Um, he told me, Peter, you've got to give up everything that you you bought with drug money. Everything that doesn't belong to you that was ill-gotten gains, give it away. And so I gave everything away. I had a big factory full of stuff. I gave away the cars, gave away literally everything I've owned. I moved out to a caravan park at Jin Jin. Hmm. And out at the How did you step away from, you know... From the stuff? For, well, from from the business and the people and everything. Uh, well, basically what I did firstly is, is I actually used a lot of the equipment that I owned and I went out and paid out everybody I owed. Uh, I can't mention the name of the mob that I used to get my gear off. Yeah. But I made sure I always had a good name in my selling and that's why I can go to any prison. doesn't matter who I am, I've got a good name. Yeah. Um, but I went and paid all my debts. Um, some debts that I didn't have the cash for, I gave them tools and equipment and cars and, yeah. and jet skis and stuff. And I gave away all my possessions to those that I owed anything to, and, and even those I didn't own anything to, 
I gave trailer loads of stuff away to churches and just gave everything away. Hmm. And then I went and put myself into a caravan park a long way from Perth where I could just get my sleep back. And then I booked into the Jinjin Caravan Park, um, which is about 60k in the Midland. And, um, and I just slept and I slept and I slept and I slept and I had a computer and um, God told me, he says, Peter, sit down and I want you to write your life out. And, um, and every time I wake up, I'd sit at the computer and type. And then when I get too tired, I went back to bed again. And I'm trying to get my sleeping patterns back after using all that gear. It took a lot. And I was using this stuff called Rest of It. You can get it from over the counter at a chemist. Um, but when I was awake, I'd type. And I remember I got up to a certain point in the story. And then I heard his voice clear as day. He says, Peter, we've written the first half. Now let's write the second. And he said, stop there. And I sealed the book. And, and then so I haven't written anything on it until just recently. And I put it away, forgot nothing about it. And I, at the time I was on bail for a pound of pot, some handguns and swapped my lawyer from a dodgy lawyer to a legit lawyer. I pleaded guilty on the charges I was on. I only got four months jail. While I was in jail, he told me, Peter, I want you to go to Bible college. So I applied for every Bible college yeah. there was. And I was led to a particular Bible college, a Riverview Bible college. And I went and studied three years full-time at Bible College. And now I've been to 16 different schools. I only made grade six. Can't even read running writing. And um, I've done three years Bible College um, at this particular Bible College. And for me, it wasn't as much as learning about the Bible. It was learning about hanging around people like you. Yeah. Geeks, normal people. I remember the first day I walked into the place, this dude tried to hug me. I went to crack him one. I didn't realize Christians cuddle each other. Right. And this bloke, JJ Myers, his name. Um, but I spent three years at that school and there was 140 that started first year and I completed it and there was, um, I actually ended up getting academic student of the year, um, at the last year and there's a trophy just there in 2004. And the only reason I got academic student of the year, there's two students left who finished the third year. One was from the Solomon Islands and me, I was down the Aussie, so yeah. obviously his writing wasn't very good. <laughs> so I got the student of the year award. <laughs> But that's actually the only trophy I've ever earned in my life. Yeah. And I've never had anything like that. So, But I've done three years Bible college. And then after doing three years Bible college, I actually started a business while I was at Bible college in the first year. I used to push a lawnmower around the streets, knocking on doors and mowing lawns. And when I wasn't studying, I'd push and uh, deliver pamphlets, mow lawns. And I started a business. First year, I turned over 70,000. Second year, I turned over 160,000. Third year, I turned over close to half a mil. That was why I was at Bible College. I ended up employing lots of staff in the Bible mm. College. The business grew really quick, sold that one, started another one. How did it feel doing something, you know, legitimate? <coughs> yeah, good. I started lots of businesses over the course of my life, but that was the first legit one where I actually started paying taxes. Yeah. Before I never paid taxes. And um, I became, while I was doing the business, I became a full-time or a part-time volunteer at Acacia Prison. And I was a volunteer at Acacia Prison for three days a week. Um, and my wife ran the business when I wasn't um, doing the business. But I was doing that for three days a week for five years um, until July 2010. So basically from 2005 to 2010, I was a prison chaplain at Acacia Prison. And in 2010, I finished. I felt God told me to step out the boat, become a full-time volunteer. And so I've been a full-time volunteer since July 2010. So I haven't got an income. 
I haven't had an income since July 2010. Even today, I still don't have an income. I don't get paid from Schlonghouse. I don't take a dollar. I don't let it do nothing for me. Um, I do it voluntary. Um, so I became a volunteer in 2010 and um, floated around. I just get, keep, kept getting people who come across my path needing help. And, um, and, and I used to chuck them in a bus and cut them down to a mate down in Mandarin and Fresh Start and other places. And um, one day I was driving past uh, Bandout Prison and, and I felt I needed to look at this house and I felt to buy this house at the time I was debt free and, and that's where we started from there. That was your first long house. First long house next to Bandout Women's Prison, yeah. Yeah. And when you had that first house, um, <coughs> how did you draw in your first residence? Oh, it's not how I draw the first residence. Um, well, they come to you. Yeah, mate, it's just like... Like no, was art. They wouldn't leave me alone. Hmm. I just kept attracting people that needed help. They just kept hmm. coming. So when um, when these people first started to come, what? How did you approach? You know uh, their their rehabilitation. I mean, now now you have what was it the five step process? Well, right, ba- basically, the whole lot of it happened. Like, up up in, the, in five years as a prison chaplain. When you get nuked like I didn't have an encounter with the ground moving, all the lights were never uh, moving. And um, and you have the encounter I did. I went from full on, I became a God botherer. Yeah. Christianese, you mean? If you don't know about God, look out. I'm going to tell you about God. And, and I tried to communicate what I need to be true in the best way I have. I didn't realize I was doing more harm than good. Right. But when you have the encounter that I had and experienced what I did, mate, you believe it, right? And you want to share it. You yeah. want to tell it. And all of us communicate what we know to be true in the best way we know how. But I didn't yeah. realise I was actually doing more harm than good. Now, how do you mean? Because of you? Because the way that I, out. yeah, because a lot of people have been forced to go to church their whole life. Or, yeah. You know, their dad's Christian or professes to be a Christian, yet he steals and lies and swears, and and so we might the word Christian a dirty name. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not okay. The best way to to tell you your faith or communicate your faith is is shut your mouth and live it. Yes. Your actions should speak louder than your words. You should be able to see a person's faith by the way that they live their life. Um, but I, I try to communicate what I need to be true in, in the best way I know how. Um, I, I've done more harm than good. And I used to run around the jail. And I used to get 40, 60 prisoners down the chapel. And I used to pack the place out. And um, and uh, I remember getting this voice again saying, Psalm 4610, Psalm 4610. Psalm 4610 says, Be still and know that I'm God. And one day I'm sitting at home and I was praying and I had this Psalm 4610 again. Oh, mate, shut up. And I grabbed a hold of my Bible and had a box, a bit like that there, and I grabbed yeah. the box and I opened this box up and it was an ASAP translation, New America Standard. The Bible has different translations. Yeah. And, and so I, I read in the NASAB, it said, Cease striving, be still and know that I'm God. Hmm. I was striving. I had a plan about how I would tell people about Christ. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, I had my plan, and it was my plan, and I was going about my plan, and I was doing things the way that I thought I was supposed to do it. Uh, But I was 50,000 feet up the road, and God was way back there. Right. He says, what are you doing when you're finished running around like an idiot? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. And he says, see, striving, be still, and know that I'm God, unless the Lord builds the house. They labour in vain who built it. <laughs> and it was like getting hit in the head with a sledgehammer. Yeah. And from that day forward, I, I ceased striving. Now I just take one what, day What does that time. mean, cease striving? Um, I don't have a plan anymore. I don't actually, I didn't even plan to start a rehab. 
I just get up every day and be the best me I can be, and I steward what's on my lap. Um, I start my day today. I was given today as a gift. I need to steward it in the words that I speak and the thoughts that I think and the decisions that I make and the way that I treat those that I speak to and the way that I respond to those who mistreat me and the way that I am with my money. I, I need to be the best me that I can be. If I disrespect somebody or hurt somebody through my words or my actions, what's really real for them needs to be real for me. Yeah. And I need to take ownership of that. I have the ability to set them free. Um, and so I just take one day at a time and I focus on what I can change. I can change today. Yeah. I used to focus a lot on my past and, and I'd go the whole day focusing about everything that happened in my past. And at the, at the end of the day, I'd put my head on the pillow, but I miss my today because I had my head in yesterday. Yeah. And then I would have all these grand plans about how I'm going to lead people to Christ and, and, and put a lot of energy and a lot of thought in how I was going to lead people to Christ. And, and I had my head in next week and the week after. And, and at the end of the day, the day was gone. And often how I thought it was going to work out, didn't want how it worked out. And yeah. I missed the day. And so now I just take one day at a time. I literally, I don't think about tomorrow. I don't think about yesterday. I take one day at a time because each day has enough troubles. Home. When I got out of bed this morning, I was given today as a gift. Yeah. And, and I assured it to the best of my ability. And I end my day on my knees. I get on my knees at the end of my day. And I make sure my conscience is clean to the best of my ability. But just because my conscience is clean, there's a passage in the Bible, just because my conscience is clean, it doesn't mean I'm okay. It's God himself who will judge on that day. Yeah. But I make sure my conscience is clean and I put my head on the pillow and then I go to sleep. And when I wake up in the morning, I do the same thing again. And I just take one day at a time. I've been doing that every day since 2010. And that's how I live my life now. I'm a multi-skilled fella. I hold nearly every trade there is. I'm actually a qualified boilermaker and I can, I'm a tire and a carpenter and a painter and, a, and I, can, I hold nearly every ticket there is for every piece of machinery. Yeah. The way that I am by looking, um, when I um, stepped out of the boat in 2010, um, I owned my own home and, um, um, I went into debt to buy this house. I felt led to buy this house because these people kept coming to me in July in 2012. I bought the house. Mm. And um, I put seven fellas in the house. Um, and I just discipled seven fellas. Mm. And I thought you could just put seven fellas in the house and they'd all be honky-dory. And we didn't work like that. No. I, I realised that a lot of stuff that they had on them and a lot of stuff that they were watching was actually working against me. Yeah. So I had to take away the phones, TV, radio, newspapers, no smoking. I had to start saying no swearing, no talking about your past. I had to learn lots and lots of stuff. Yes. If you put me in a, in, a, in a shed with five worlders or seven worlders and said, learn the world, I learned the world. You put me in a house with seven fellows and say, change your life. Um, I learned to change your life. And that's how my head thinks. Um, begin with the end in mind. Yes. So I begin with the end in mind. The goal is to have a man whole, full and complete. And, and for every person. What does whole, full and complete? Uh, for every person, whole, full and complete means something different. Right. And for a man who had a wife and five children, it should be whole, full, and complete. Mum, dad, and kids back together. Family. Yes. And for a husband and wife, it should be whole, full, and complete. And for a son that's been separated from his siblings, brothers and sisters, and his mum doesn't want nothing to do with him anymore, it should be whole, full, and complete. Whole, full, and complete should be a productive member of society, free from influence of drugs and substances. And one that's equipped to make right choices in life. One that's equipped to how to respond and to communicate and to express how they feel in a way that doesn't hurt or yeah. harm somebody else. 
But it's true to themselves. But it's, yeah, but it's true to themselves. Um, to actually listen to the right voice, not the wrong voice. Yeah. Um, but the problem is a lot of people believe lies as truths. And if a person becomes a lie as a truth, that lie becomes their truth. Yes. And, and so then you start to have the convenient truth and lies that we tell each other. Yeah, that's it. So I just, I, I, I started um, working out how stage one works. So I discipled a certain group of people to a certain point, And then I realized that I had to give them some more control of their life. And after having them constrained, it's a bit scary to actually give them a bit of freedom. Hmm. And so I rented a second house. Because <coughs> people kept coming, wanting to come into the house. And I needed room. So I went and rented a second house. And I started what's called a stage two. And at stage two, I start giving fellas two days of paid employment with an employer on the same page as the rehab. And what they do that's is... Like, that's outside of the house. Outside of the house with the employer. But you vetted who they are. Yeah, I vetted who they are. I, I looked at the employers. I made sure I got the right employer. And I told them, it's not about this person, you employing this person. It's about you discipling this person. Hmm. about complimenting me in what I'm doing. Yep. Make sure you don't sit in with somebody else who's using drugs or smoking or swearing. And yeah. Take an active part in their employment. And so I started a house and I got these three fellas, um, um, jobs with the employers, and I put them in a house which is a few doors up. And I rented my second house and, and scissor my second house, put them three in, I had three more to come in. And, and then I discipled them again. And, and, and then all of a sudden I realized I needed to give stage two. Stage two, you start off with two days paid work, 100% of the income that they earn goes to them, we don't take anything from it, but we use that to get them out of debt. And then the stage two part of the program mm. had to implement a stage three. Um, so I had to find another house, and that's which led me to Park Street property, yep. which has three houses under one roof. And so I sold the house up there to get me out of debt, cancelled the um, the rent we had on this one, moved into the house up there earlier, and um, and they just kept coming. And because um, what words getting out that yeah, it just words, yeah, they just kept coming and. and I put an application to the Shire in the original house and then now in the next house. And, and then soon 14 become 30 and 30 become 40 and 40 become 50 and 50 become 70. And I've got a systems and structures I need in place for seven doesn't work for um, 14. And then um, 70 become 90 and 90 become 100 and 100 become 120. And at the moment I'm at 140 and I've just taken another house on, on uh, uh, Friday going um, which gives me another 30, which is taking 170, 160, so. Yeah. So it'll take me 160 to 170. So it's a lot of blokes. Yeah. So we're 100% self-funded. Um, but every one of our fellows through the program, five stages of the program, um, every one of our fellows leave our program um, 100% debt-free, whether you've got $100 worth of debt or a million dollars worth of debt. Yeah. Every one of our fellows leaves 100% debt-free. Um, every one of our fellows... Um, has all their general issues. They all leave owning their own car, um, having a driver's license, even if they've got three life suspensions. Yeah. Every one of our fellas, all their family relationships are 100% restored. Yeah. And um, for those who are working so with us. that's part of the, yeah. the whole. And-, and they're all working full-time for an employer on the same page as the rehab five days a week. I have every one of my fellas completely off of Centrelink. And by seven months, I have them stop receiving Centrelink benefits by four months. Um, and they only ever pay 300 bucks a week. Yeah. And out of the 300 bucks a week, I make it all function. Um, it's like I pay nearly $10,000 rents a week on the houses that I rent. Um, I have a fleet of buses, I have 50 to 70 staff. 
I have trucks and um, I said, we have a big job on my hands. Yeah. Yeah. But it's actually working. And if it wasn't for the stage five, me learning about the stage five. What was pro- stage probably, five again, sorry? The stage, the stage five, if it wasn't for the stage five, I would probably have close to 100% success rate. Hmm. Um, but stage four, and the program you start, when I take a person into the house, I'm taking 100% control of their life. Yeah. When I move them to stage three, I'm giving them 30% control of uh, stage two, I'm giving them 30% control of their life back. Yeah. I increase their paid days work from two to three, three to four, and then I move them to stage three. Stage three, you get to have your keys to your car. You can go out to 8.30 at night by yourself unsupervised. You have one day in on the weekend and one day out on the weekend to do as you please. Um, and we do that for, then you move to stage four. Stage four means you're working five days a week and you're only on roster once a month. Hmm. Um, and then stage five is when you think you're ready to graduate from the program or you want to move on. You've got to tell me, what do you want to do? Well, I want to go to Cambodia and live and work as a missionary for a while. Hmm. Or I want to go move down to Mandra. I've got myself a unit. Me and such and such are going to share a house together. And I'm, I'm working uh, still with the same person. And this is a church that I'm plugged into. So at the moment, I have a heap of fellas plugged into a church. And, um, and so basically, we just let them loose. But that stage five gives me three months or more they've got to apply to actually graduate. Right. Um, between the four and five, I'm moving to stage five. Five means they go and get their own place to stay. We fully deck out the whole house for them for free. Yeah. All furniture, TVs, beds, make sure that miss nothing, everything from kettles to toasters. Yeah. We fully deck out the house and then they apply to graduate. And so they stay in the community, live in the community and we monitor from a distance are they making right choices. Randomly we can just rock up and get piss tests on them and when they're ready to graduate, um, we, we would have done a few random piss tests on them. We can see why are they still working in the same place. Yeah. We can tell by the smell of smoke and yeah. And all that sort of stuff. And if they aren't smoking and they're not drinking and they don't have any dirty piss tests, we graduate them. Right. And so at the moment, we've got an 88% success rate for those who completed the program. And the 12% is because I didn't have a stage five, but then, but I wrote stage one and then I worked out stage one worked in with stage two and then how stage two worked in with stage three and then how that stage four worked in with stage that. And, and bit by bit is I learned also how to delegate. This is actually taking the original seven through it. Yeah. So it's about learning to delegate a person's strengths, uh, a position person in their strengths and delegate their weaknesses. And so that's all I do. Right. Is uh, disciple people. Discipling people to disciple people. And so basically Shlom's at a point now at the moment where um, it doesn't just evolve around me. Um, it is 100%. And when I say 100% self-funded, it is 100% self-funded. And we do have a registered charity, a not-for-profit group, um, we're DJR status, charity collections license. We can ask people for money, but we don't do that. Yeah. Um, I was where I was because of the decisions that I've made. Um, I faced circumstances over the course of my life that I didn't create, but at the end of the day, I was the one that made the choice to determine the direction of my life. Yeah. Um, 100%. Do you, do you drink alcohol? Yes. Why do you drink alcohol? Um, that's a very good question. You enjoy it? Yeah. I enjoy it on wine. Yeah, wine's not normal, is it? Yeah. I, I enjoy methamphetamines. Hmm. Nothing wrong with a bit of methamphetamines. I've shot here and there. I work hard, 40 hours a week. Who would you decide that me using methamphetamines is any different than alcohol? Yeah. And, that, and that's what it is. The reason they, they smoke methamphetamines or shoot methamphetamines, they can't say there's any difference. Yeah. 
people who smoke cannabis, why do they smoke cannabis? Because they enjoy it. Yeah. Why do you smoke um, cigarettes? Because you enjoy it. Why do you drink alcohol? Because you enjoy it. Why do I use heroin? Because I enjoy it. It's okay. I'm not hurting anybody. And they can't see that they are actually hurting somebody. And they can't see that they're actually also hurting themselves. Mm. If a person believes a lie as a truth, that lie becomes their truth. Now, out of your heart, out of the heart flow the issues of life, out of the heart flow the consequence of life. We're supposed to guard the heart because it's the wellspring of life. We're out of the heart. Um, the mouth speaks. So what's in a person actually operates through a person. Um, me and you were sitting here at ground level, and, and your listeners who are listening to this, we're sitting at ground level, and we make decisions based upon what we can see. Um, uh, we're heading out the road. We're going to decide whether we're going to turn left or right. But if we could go two kilometres up, and if we had a bigger picture, we'd probably see being around 5 o'clock per time right now, we're peak hour. And there's some roads that we probably wouldn't take if we had a bit of a, a glimpse. Yes. And we'd probably take a different direction. Um, and so the higher up you go, the more you see. Yeah. That you're not actually just a fart in the wind. Now, there is a light and a dark, a good and a bad. Yeah. And at the end of the day, there's a battle for your soul. And when you die, there is, in fact, a heaven and there is a hell. Yeah. And God is really, really real and he, he really does love us. And as long as there's blood in our veins and there's air in our lungs, he's trying to reach out and restore all of humanity back to himself. Because when your spirit leaves your body, um, it either goes to the dark or it goes to the light. There's actually two births that a person experiences in life. The first birth is through the woman's birth canal. Mm. The second birth is when he's spiritually born. Yeah. That's the feeling you feel when he comes inside you. You feel him on the inside. You're awakened under who he is. Uh, the Bible calls it awakened under righteousness. Yeah. You feel him come alive on the inside of you. He's inexpressible. His presence far surpasses any drug you'll ever experience in your life. There's nothing like it. He is just literally mind-blowingly off the charts. He is the fullness of everything that I aspire to be. And the word shalom itself, um, people know it as a, as a Jewish word or a Hebrew word, and, and they know it to say go in peace. But the word shalom actually means love in its purest form. Truth in its purest form, honesty, integrity, transparency, accountability, the fullness of everything that is good, uh, the strength to do everything that is good. It encompasses everything that I desire to be. And that's why I've called the place Shalom. Yeah. I'm not a religious person. I can't, I can't stand religious people. People, a religious person to me is one that, that runs around saying fish, chips and salt every second word. You know, the F word, F is for fish, the C word, C is for chips. Yeah. And the S is for salt, fish, chips, and salt. And they say that every second word. They jiggy jig with everything on two legs. They wear a cross around the neck and they go to church once a week. That's a, that's a religious person. Yes. And the Christianese person is one that runs around saying, Hallelujah, love you, Jesus. Glory to God. Jesus is Jesus that. And they're real God botherers and they set the standard of Christianity so high. When you come from where I've come from, I don't want yeah. to be like that. I, I actually was like that for 10 years. Yes. And to those who I was like that, I apologize. What I've done was not okay. And if you've been had Jesus pushed down your throat, I want to say to you today that I'm sorry. Uh, and then you got the other Bob, the general, I don't give a flying flopper. If it works for you, it's okay, but not in my circle. Picture three circles, like the Olympic emblem. First yeah. circle, religion. Second circle to the right, Christianese. Bottom circle, I don't give a flying flopper. If it works for you, I'm a good person. I'm okay. Yeah. Me, I... I now live a circle that actually overlaps the three. Yeah. I fit in with the religious people. I fit in with the Christianese people. 
I fit in with the general, I don't give a flying flop of people. And I actually don't care what anyone thinks of me in any way, shape or form. You, your listeners, my staff, anybody, I don't care what anyone thinks of me, not even slightly. And I'm not going to tell people what they want to hear. I'm going to tell people what they need to hear. Yep. You're not just a fart in the wind when you croak it, you're going to go somewhere. And probably one of the smartest things you could ever do, while there's blood in your veins, in the air, in your lungs, you might want to suss out if what they're saying is true. Because if they are, um, you don't find out you're in a bit of a pickle. Yes. Straight out. Yeah, and so now um, I've learned how to communicate faith in a way um, that people can understand it. I actually pastor a church. It's not your average church on top of everything else that I do. And Which church is that? It's a, one around the corner. It's the Church of Christ Church. We have 350-plus men, and we don't have none of this, all this worship stuff. I just... I've been cutting trees down all day. I, I go covered in sweat and covered in grease and chains oil and I preach as I am. I don't like dressing up. So what you see is what you get. You're welcome yeah. as you are. And but we just have one bloke and a guitar and we have 350 people screaming their lungs off and you can hear everybody sing. We don't have any stage performance stuff. Yeah. And when we talk about farms, winds and sleep with prostitutes and mums and dads, doctors, we just straight up. I mean, I've made a yeah. mistake. I'm sorry. Real stuff. But yeah, just be real. Man, if you're a lot of people carrying stuff, depression, suicide, this is real stuff. Um, a lot of people don't, stuff they're ashamed of, but they're too scared to actually speak about and what they've done. Yeah. For example, I'm taking 400 plus men on a camp down to, um, um, Dunsbury in four weeks time, 400. I took 220 last time. And I call it get a life weekend, rule blokes, rule stories, put your crap on the table. And I lead by example, I get up there and share my testimony about the stuff that I've done and, and how I hated my dad. And, yeah. And then I've got 40 facilitators and I break them off in teams of 10. And, and we have no preaching, no religion, no nothing. And we just kick the footy, walk on the beach, do a few trail rides. We have a fleet of 80, 80, uh, 57 seater buses and get a life and we just bunch of boats going to be on. Yeah. And stick your religion up your backside. Yeah. A lot of people have been forced to go to church their whole life. But if the message they have to proclaim is actually true, how do you communicate it? You've got that picture up there, that R on the left. The T oh, yeah, in the middle, yeah, oh, yeah. the C on the right is a Christian. He's a general flying flopper. Yeah. The the red and the the C the C they're hot, they're on fire for God. The G they're cold. I would rather you hot not cold. Yeah. The R they're lukewarm. Yeah. I would rather you hot not cold because I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. They're in a bit of a pickle. Yeah. Eternity is forever and ever and ever and ever. If the message they have to proclaim is actually true. When you die, you're going to spend eternity in the fullness of the presence of love and everything that encompasses, yep. or death and everything that encompasses. Um, I know what love feels like. Uh, I don't want pain and suffering and torment. I know what that feels like. You've got enough of that. And eternity is forever, and if there's a door at the end of forever, what's at the end of the door on the other side? And I've had some experiences over the last 15 years. I feel like I'm in a, a science fiction movie. All of this is really, really real. Yeah. And so that's what I do is I just teach my fellows. If you see my staff, all my staff, just I love my staff. A lot of my staff are volunteers and it's just exceptional. This place is working. We're destroying the lives of men and families in our community. But it's, it's about a relationship with, like I said, the light or truth or the higher power or why well, I think something's up there. Or God, 
I mean, you call it whatever you want, depending on your program. Yeah. But you're not just a fart in the wind. Yeah. You walk in a petrol station, the bloke at the, at the checkout gives you 20 bucks, too much change. You walk out, one voice says scored, the other one says give it back. You know, take a pick. Which one do you want? Yeah, which one do you want? You go to shopping centre, Coles or Woolies, and you load all your trolley up with your goodies, and you walk out of the car park, and you put your bags in the back of the car, and you push your trolley aside, and you go to get in the car. One voice says, take the trolley back. Yep. And the other voice is stuff them. They get paid for that. Not rocket science. If you're the person who's listening right now and the one that says stuff them, they get paid for that. Well, I'd like to challenge you right now. I reckon you're in a bit of a pickle. Because mm. if that's the voice you listen to, I'd be pretty scared right now. Yeah, for all that's down the line. And all Christianese people, they all try to communicate what they know to be true. I don't have one program here. I have 140 programs. Every one of them learn differently, think differently, speak differently, act differently, respond differently, have been programmed differently, and how I communicate to you is different and how I communicate to you is different how I communicate to you. I've learned more in the last five and a half years than I have in my whole life, and all I've done is delegated what I've learned, and I have tears and tears of leadership, and, and, and it doesn't function around me. If I get knocked on the head, this place is still ticking. And so cruises on. Good. Yeah, and I'll show you on this in a second. That, that will interest you. This is a bit of my yeah. idle functions. Okay, that's that. So, in, in, just to summarize, in, in, with, my, with my relationship, I was right. In the last 15 years, uh, the hardest thing that I've ever done with my life was become a Christian. And um, before, honestly, if I wanted something, I just took it. Um, and without fear of consequence, if I want ice cream, I just took it. Yeah. If I wanted to do it, I just did it. Uh, I never paid taxes. If I want to sleep with a woman, I'll go to a prostitute and I'll take two or three on a hit. Um, I just did whatever I wanted to do with no fear of consequence. But when all of a sudden I was awakened and God came into my heart, bit by bit he started convicting me about how I spoke to people, how I responded, and how I was with cash when you do a job and someone pays you cash. And you can't take cash. You're supposed to pay taxes. I mean, that's otherwise we wouldn't have what we had. And yeah. I had to learn all that sort of stuff. It was just like... And going back, it's hard to be because it's hard listening to that light. Sometimes that light, yeah, listening to the right voice, it costs you. So it's hard to say no to a beer. I mean, I love a pure blonde at the end of the day with a squeeze of a lemon. Well, I have an addictive nature. Yes, I can't drink. I, I just, I just, it's hard to be a Christian. I just yeah. ever done with my life is become a Christian. But in the last fifteen years, God has not only just changed my life, I mean, He's changed my wife's life. My children's, I mean, I have three children, 28, um, 21, and, and uh, 18, and I have three grandchildren. My daughter's pregnant again, another grandchild on the way. My son, his wife is pregnant, another grandchild on the way. So soon I have five grandchildren, and they're all quality men. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't swear. Um, one of them so musically talented, and they're just men of integrity there, just quality, quality men. Mm. I mean, so you're my great pride in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love my. I just love my family. I love my family. I look at my family, and you can see the pictures of the walls yeah. on there. But I can honestly say, I'm next to God. I love God more than I love my family. I love Him. I love Him. He consumes me. Hmm. I mean, he's actually ruined my life. He's literally he's ruined my life. I, I wake up in the morning and I think of Him, and I go about my day and I think of Him. And I put my head on my pillow and I think of him. I can't get him out of my brain. Yeah. Everything that I need, everything that I desire, 
everything that I aspire to be is all found in him. Yeah. He is love in its purest form. His truth in its purest form. His honesty, his integrity. He loves me. He cares for me. He's compassionate. He's kind. He's faithful. He's, oh, he's the fullness of everything that is mind-blowingly, uncomprehendingly good. And we think we can encompass or we can comprehend who he is, but our comprehension of who he is would only com- encompass a grain of sand when he literally encompasses every grain of sand in the universe. He's uncomprehendable, yet he's comprehendable. Yes. And, and he said to me really early in the piece, he says, Peter, if you abide in me and my word, abide is to live in and make your home. As I keep my eyes on him, he promised me that everything that concerns me would concern him. And so I put him above my wife and my children and my family. I put him above everything in my life. And I've seen as I put him first, he puts me first. And, and he is in more places in one time than I can be. Yes. And I've seen him do what he does. I mean, you see the story of Shalom to do what we're doing. Um, and if you to actually see testimony, and I could take you over testimony after testimony of this whole place, and we're 100% debt-free, we're 100% self-funded, we're doing what every department, government department in Australia is attempting to do, and we're not costing anybody a cent. Yeah. We don't really need anything from anybody in any way, shape, or form. And you're doing good. Yeah, and we literally consolidate every service that the government is offering, and we're not costing anyone a cent. Nothing like it anywhere in Australia. No. Yeah, and soon, soon it's going to be rolled out. It's kind of head-scratching that it's, it is the only thing. Every person who's been out there has been dumbfounded. Yeah. Just literally dumbfounded. They walk and go, I don't need it. Yeah, there's an incredible straightforwardness and honesty to everything you're saying. And yeah. I mean, I've got an audit team going through over at the moment, four of them, and from a company in Perth called Ernest and Young. Yeah. And they're, they're going right over everything. Go for your life. I did two of them a year. Yeah. Go for your life. I'm an uneducated fella. I mean, I I, I sit back in the last four years and, and five years now, that's how long uh, been running, and I haven't, I haven't actually myself personally... I haven't grown Shalom House. I haven't made Shalom House. I haven't developed Shalom House. Um, I've sat back and I've taken one day at a time and I've seen God put Shalom House together. Hmm. I've seen God position each member as he chose everything I need that he has bought one by one by one. And he hasn't done all of this because of Peter, Lyndon James. He hasn't done it because of me. He's done it in spite of me. Yes. <laughs> And I've sat back and watched him, but people, sadly, people need to see a face. But he has done all this. He's changed their lives. You ask any one of my men, he has changed their lives. He has mm. done all this. Him, he is real. He's, he is really, he is really, really real. He's mind-blowingly friggin' surreal. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just restoration. That's what he's about. That's all he does. And just starts by having a relationship with him, learning to listen to his voice, Learning to take up your cross, deny yourself. Does everybody yourself. have, you're talking about the voices. Yeah. yeah. Does everybody have this? Yeah, I teach them how to hear his voice. Yeah. I teach them how to have a relationship with God. This and, is what you do with your man. Yeah, I don't care if you're Buddhist or Muslim or atheist mm. or Hindu. I don't care what faith you come from. But I teach them how to have a relationship with God. You ask any of my men, mate, they're on fire. Mm. I had 140 of them on fire for him. Mm. And anybody out there listening to this, what what's some of the simple things they can do to listen to that voice? When, when, when no one's there and no one else is around, just get by yourself and then get on your knees like I did in that prison cell and say, God, if what that bald-headed... By the way, listeners, I am actually bald. <laughs> yeah. If, if what that bald-headed fellow is saying is actually true, um, if you can change his life, you can change mine. Get on your knees, find nobody else around you and pray. God, if you're real, 
if you're real, I ask your forgiveness for my sins and I give you permission to do whatever it takes for me to come to know you. I am sorry if I've believed any lies as truths. I ask your forgiveness if I've done anything that doesn't line up with what Peter says you stand for. And I want to say that I'm sorry. Um, but if what he's saying is true, I give you permission as an act of my own free will to change my life and bring people across my path and like you've done to Peter. And you watch what happens. Hmm. It'll happen to you like it happened to me. Wow. Yeah. That's what I say every day. Wow. Yeah. Cool. I'm going to draw this to a close now. Not a problem. Um, Peter, I can't thank you enough for the openness and honesty that you've spoken today. Yeah. Um, I, I myself am sitting here rather speechless. It's going to take me a little while to process a lot of this. Yeah. But, um, yes, I can't thank you enough. Not a problem. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, God bless you. <laughs>